0: Well, good morning, Elam. We have reached my favorite part of the calendar. I'm not a Halloween or a New Year's Eve guy, but there is nothing better in my estimation than that stretch of time from November 1st to December 30th. It's a beautiful season that I just cherish. The brisk mornings, the bright falling leaves, the aromas of cinnamon and ginger and vanilla in the air. All the kind of profound, rich symbols that are associated with our holiday traditions and the seeming appropriateness in these months to sing out loud publicly without shame. I don't know why, but I love that. I also kind of associate November in particular in this stretch of time with generosity and gratitude. So today we're going to discuss Christian generosity. And when I say Christian generosity, I'm not making the claim that one has to be a Christian in order to be generous. In fact, there are incredibly generous and hospitable people who proclaim no faith in Jesus, and yet they give of themselves and their money freely to those in need. Yet while you don't have to be a Christian to be generous, one of the marks of being a follower of Jesus, one of the indicators of God working In your life is generosity. Not all generous people are Christians, but all Christians ought to be generous. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to take as our text this morning 2 Corinthians, uh, chapters 8 and 9. Don't worry, we're going to do excerpts. We're going to take a peek at a letter that the Apostle Paul is penning to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. In ancient times, Corinth was a prosperous metropolis. It was a trade hub that was situated on an isthmus. It was very wealthy, and it was because they sat between kind of the Peloponnesian Peninsula and mainland Greece. Basically, if you were trying to go or get anything from Athens to Sparta, you needed to go through Corinth, and Corinth was going to make you pay for it. So they were this kind of trade power, and they were a very uh, liberal, highly spiritualized city. Uh, They kind of were an ancient San Francisco if you added more sailors and merchants and temple prostitutes, or maybe that's just San Francisco, my old home. So Paul is writing to Corinthian Christians about generosity, and he begins his pitch by telling a story about what is going on in Macedonia, a region north of Corinth. And he writes this We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so God has poured out his grace on these Macedonian churches. What? Is the grace of God here then? Well, let's keep reading. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So the grace of God that is poured out upon these churches is a wealth of generosity. A wealth of generosity that overflows from joyful hearts and springs up even in the face of, of extreme difficulty and poverty. You see, the Apostle Paul has been traveling through Greece on a fundraising drive. He had just come from the Macedonian cities of Philippi and Thessalonica and the Christians in those cities are facing stiff opposition from their pagan neighbors. Persecution there was causing them to lose their jobs and their businesses. These Christians were financially insecure, yet despite all this, they were giving with joy and earnestness. They had given themselves fully to God, and this resulted in generosity bubbling up within them. They were donating to Paul's cause whatever they could. They were giving as they were able and sometimes beyond what they were able Trusting that God would provide for their needs despite their hardship. So Paul, he left Macedonia, marveling at the work of God that he was accomplishing in their hearts. And humbled, he now rolls into Corinth, the next spot on his fundraising drive, and he's singing the praises of the Macedonians. And now it's time for the Corinthians to pony up their funds. And you might be thinking, man, who knew the Apostle Paul was such a money grubber? No wonder he had a rocky relationship with the wealthy Corinthian church. He must have been gimme, gimme, gimme every time he came into town. Well, actually, no. One of the issues that the Corinthians had with Paul, actually, prior to this, was that he wouldn't take their money at all. You see, in the ancient world, money and gifts, they always came with strings attached. It always came with obligation. If you took money from someone in the ancient world, they became your patron. The money was free, it was a gracious gift, but it came with expectations. You were expected to be faithful to your patron, to be devoted to them and their interests you took the money, and from that point forward, you would champion your benefactor and his causes. You see, the prosperous Corinthians, they were used to throwing their money around and getting supporters, what they called clients in the ancient world, in return. And Paul, he was never willing to enter into a client-patron relationship with them. He wasn't going to give them control of his message or his schedule, or where he would go next to preach the gospel. So every time Paul came to Corinth, he would roll up his sleeves and he would earn his keep, making tents and selling them in the marketplace. And this seriously bothered the Corinthians. So what then is Paul raising money for, if not his own ministry? Remember in verse 5 how the Macedonians, they were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Well, there are some saints, it sounds, that are in need of relief. Specifically, these saints were Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem who were suffering under a severe, years-long famine. But there's something else going on here as well. Remember that money and gifts always come with strings attached. So Paul's actually cooking up a grand scheme for uniting God's church. Because at this stage in the game, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, they don't really get along. They come from different cultures, different religious backgrounds. The Jewish Christians are suspicious of these former pagans who have now placed their faith in Jesus. They weren't Jews, like Jesus was, they don't celebrate the same holidays that Jesus celebrated. They don't keep the Jewish food laws. They buy meat in the marketplace that just the day before was sacrificed on some pagan altar. So these Greek Christians are just different to the Jewish Christians. And sure, they're claiming to follow after Jesus faithfully in their own way, but things don't look like what the Jewish Christians are used to. So tensions and suspicions are incredibly high. Yet Paul sees the famine as an opportunity to knit together the Jewish Jerusalem church and the Gentile churches of Greece. You see, the Jerusalem's church sat at the place of influence in the global church. Because it was in their city that Jesus died and was resurrected. It was in their city that the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. Their city serves as a home base for the apostles, the men that walked with Jesus. It is their church that is under the leadership of Jesus' own biological brother, James. So that the Jewish Christians are like the true-born children, the true-born sons and daughters of God, while in contrast, the Greek Christians feel like the kind of the red-headed stepchildren in God's family. Yet despite their difference in status, at this current moment, the Jerusalem Church is in dire need, and that dire need presents an opportunity. A generous gift from the Greek churches could bind Jewish and Greek Christians together in relationship. Remember, gifts and money always comes with strings attached, and Paul is banking on those natural strings to unite these two disparate communities. And he lays out his reasoning in the next chapter. In verse 12, he says, for the ministry of this service which is his collection for the Jerusalem church, it is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of the service, that's the Jerusalem Christians, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. To Paul, this collection is about more than just supplying the needs of the Jerusalem church. It's about letting the Jewish Christians see the grace of God at work in the lives and in the hearts of Greek Christians. In the face of such a gracious gift, the Jerusalem church can't but respond by glorifying God and longing to be in relationship with their Greek brothers and sisters. They can't but praise God And pray for those crazy former pagans in Greece who are now following Jesus. Unity through generosity is Paul's grand plan. So if you read 2 Corinthians 9, you discover that Paul has sent Titus to Corinth to ask them. He sent Titus about a year ago to ask them to start setting aside funds every Sunday for the support of the Jerusalem church. And now Paul writes this letter to tell them he's on his way to collect their donations. He wants the Corinthians to stand by their commitment and to hand over the money that they've laid aside with willingness and joy. So what can this brief interaction between Paul and the Corinthian church teach us about Christian generosity? Well, first we discover that Christian generosity is not something we manufacture within ourselves. Rather, it bubbles up from our own experience of God's grace in our lives. Remember, the whole discussion began with the statement that the grace of God had been given to the churches of Macedonia. This isn't really a story about Paul urging people to give more money to the work of God. It's actually about what God is doing in the life of His people. It's about a community that has experienced grace, and that experience is now overflowing into a wealth of joyful and grateful generosity. You can't outgive God because He is the ultimate giver. And He reminds the Corinthians of this when He says in chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Sure, the Corinthians were wealthy, but Jesus was far richer. He was the God of the universe. He was enthroned in heaven, but he was willing to graciously and joyfully give all of that up to live among us. To teach us what it means to be truly human, to die on a Roman cross for our sin and our brokenness. And as a result, we benefit richly from his generosity. We now share in his life and the power of his resurrection, and we can know wholeness and restoration and what it means to be in right relationship with God, with each other, with our world. You can't outgive Jesus. And our generosity overflows from the generosity we have received and experienced in Him. The second thing we discover about Christian generosity is that God desires for our giving to be according to our means. Generosity, it's part and parcel of our renewed identity in Jesus, and it's not dependent on our circumstances while we aren't expected to give what we don't have, it is always within our means to give something. And here we have those Macedonian churches enduring severe persecution, and they didn't know where their next paycheck was going to come from, but they still gave. They gave of themselves. They gave out of their poverty, and they gave with joy, honored at the opportunity to participate in the work of God. We can always give something. One of the first things you learn is when you go on a mission trip to, say, Central America or the Congo or the inner city, it is often some of the poorest people you meet who are most hospitable and open-handed with their resources. They might not have a lot, but what they do have, a little money, a car, food, time and energy, they openly share with guests and those in need in their community. You never have too little to give to God, but God is never going to ask you to give what you don't have. God might be calling you to give 10% of your paycheck to your local church, but he is not asking you to go into credit card debt to fund one of our missionaries. He might ask you to volunteer a few hours packing food at the Puyallup Food Bank, but he's not going to ask you to quit your 40-hour-a-week job and work full-time for free at the local youth shelter. We're called to give, yes, but specifically we are called to give according to our means. This is what he writes in verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 12-14. through 14. For if the readiness is there, our generosity is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Third, we discover that God desires us to use our money for kingdom purposes, his kingdom purposes, and that our generosity should demonstrate the genuineness of our love, should bring honor to God's name, and it should strengthen the bonds of unity between God's people. Personally, I'm fascinated by Paul's grand plan to bring unity to the church through lavish, Generosity. It's clever. It's shrewd. Paul's using the abundant resources of the Greek Christians to bring unity to the family of God. And we know that income is fickle and can change when one least expects it. But Paul is using the excess money that the Greek churches have in this moment to boost Jesus' reputation in the world. Jesus said, you, They may know that you are my disciples if you love one another, if you're united together as one family. So Paul is trying to facilitate that sense of family through the crafty use of money, through an extravagant application of generosity. Now, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because we're in budget season here at Elam. And next week, we're going to publish our proposed budget for 2024 and mark your calendars, the ever-exciting budget Q&A, will be November 26th after service. But as ministry leaders, as elders, and we've been wrestling through these things, and we realize that it's more about just asking the simple question of stewardship. Hey, are we doing the best that we can to keep costs down to the glory of God? And yes, that is important, but we also have to ask, is our generosity strategic and creative? Does the way we put use to use our funds have a significant impact for God's kingdom? Does it enable us to more effectively spread the gospel? Is it boosting Jesus' reputation in our community and world? Is it knitting the family of faith together? Is it demonstrating the genuineness of our love? Righteousness is not defined by how effectively we pinch our pennies. Righteousness in this area is about letting Jesus be Lord of our finances and granting him say on how these funds that he's entrusted to us are ultimately used for his purposes. So now I think it's time for us to reflect on our own generosity. But whenever we broach this topic, it always prompts questions and protests within us. So I want us to kind of go through some of these rapid fire. For example, does the New Testament command us to tithe? Well, no. Nowhere does the New Testament command us to bring a tenth of our produce into the Jerusalem temple for the sustaining of the priests and the least of these in our community. In actuality, the New Testament presents us with a far higher calling, that of Christian generosity, which is detailed in our text today. Now, some of you are hearing, so I don't actually have to give a full 10%. I can be generous in spirit, not generous necessarily in resources. Though I'd warn you, though, to be careful in trying to wiggle out of your practical obedience to Christ here. For the weight of Scripture might stand against you. First, Jesus himself certainly tithed. Second, while we are new covenant people, we're no longer bound to keep the Jewish law in its entirety. The Torah is there to train us in the ways and values of God. So the tithes and offerings that are mandated for God's people in the Old Testament Which, side note, when you take them all together, it's about 23% of their Israelite income, not 10%. But these serve as models for our spirit-inspired giving today. If anything, I'd consider tithing of a floor, not a target for Christian benevolence. Now, some of you might not like the ambiguity of this. You want it clear-cut. What exactly am I required to give? Well, you are required to give nothing. But if generosity doesn't bubble up within us, what does it say about our relationship with grace? Also, if you need a direct answer from Scripture, you may get more clarity than you bargained for. Acts 4, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. While the exact level of your generosity is a matter of personal discernment between you And the Lord, Christ's calling is clear. That's why we can, with confidence, make the following commitment as part of our membership covenant here at Elam. We say, I will share the responsibility of my church by giving consistently and generously. Yet, as we broach this, we must admit, generosity spurs within us an intellectual protest. Does God really need my money? I'll let the Lord answer that. Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. He's thinking of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Everything that is belongs to God. He does not need us to meet his needs, but he does call us to give sacrifices of thanksgiving to be true to our commitments to the Lord, not necessarily for his sake, but for our sakes and for the sake of his kingdom. You see, the truth is generosity is a gift that saves us from harm. This is Proverbs 38 through 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Or you could listen to Paul's mentoring words to his friend Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Generosity spurs in us a crisis of trust. We struggle to give generously because at the end of the day, we sense the cost and the loss, and we are concerned about God's ability to backfill our coffers. Can an invisible God be trusted to meet our very tangible needs? If you interrogate that, maybe we we don't trust God's heart towards us. We might carry this skewed view of God that says maybe God would thrill to see me suffer because it would bolster my faith and would make me more dependent on him. How do I know that his quote-unquote kindness towards me is actually good? We fear that he might be a father who gives terrible gifts to us, his children, in the name of toughening us up and developing our character. But the truth is the generosity opens us up to receive and channel grace. It enables us to see and know God. Never forget our God is a God of chesed. He is a God that when we had the right to expect nothing from him, he gave us and he continues to give us everything. The Apostle Paul, he sums it up absolutely perfectly here in 2 Corinthians 9. He says this, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Choosing generosity allows us to be swept up into the dance of grace and to get lost in its beautiful rhythms. We experience grace. We witness grace. Grace is channeled through us It's made manifest before our eyes. It transforms us and it leaves us utterly changed. Generosity doesn't introduce insecurity into our lives. It yokes us with the one who is our true security. So we give cheerfully. We give strategically and creatively. We give according to our means, rich in trust and hope. And we cultivate Generosity because it's part and parcel of our grace-shaped identity because we are people who have been touched and transformed by grace. Because we walk in loving relationship with the one who is grace incarnate. And it is our rhythm at the start of every month to to end our worship at the table of grace. Grace. At the table where we witness this great exchange, where the one who was the God of the universe, who had everything, emptied himself so that through his poverty we might become rich. He gives of himself so that others might feast. And that is the invitation that we are given as well. To get caught up in that life and that dance of grace so that even in giving we might experience plenty. The The men and I on Wednesday nights we did the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus asked them to, to give their very last morsel which he broke and he blessed and he distributed for the sake of others and yet it came back to them with a basket of Leftovers overflowing and that's the beautiful mystery of grace he gives all and it overflows to us and he says walk with me in this when you give it will overflow the dance of grace will continue and the world will be changed by my love and my heart and my work which we celebrate right here at this table so let us pray as we come Oh, generous God. You gave us a free gift. Your very self. But even this gift has now bound us to you. It has changed us. It has linked our lives to yours. It cost us nothing but now we are forever in relationship with a God who loves us, with a God who gives everything so that we might be made new, so that the world might be made new, so that this broken earth might experience heaven come down. Lord, as we come to this table, may the tangibleness of this tiny feast Remind us of the real cost of your broken body and your spilled blood. In Jesus' name, amen.